uh, a happy Mother's Day uh, to those of you who are moms. Thank you for making the world go round, uh, keeping everybody sane and fed, uh, as happy as humanly possible, getting everybody to the places that you need to go. I mean, we say that we celebrate moms here, but um, we say this every year as well, so we're going to say it this year as uh, as we've said every year, I know that today is not a happy day for all of you. Some of you have lost moms this year. Some of you lost moms the last decade. Some of you want to be a mom and you don't have a husband yet or you can't find one or you're called to singleness or maybe you struggle with infertility or miscarriages. Many, many have in this congregation. So we celebrate moms, although it's not a Christian holiday. You understand that, don't you? It's not a Christian festival. So we celebrate moms and at the same time say, as Christians, you don't have to fit this little box to be accepted by Christ. Uh, Christ says, come one, come all. Uh, Your identity is not found in this world, but it's found in him. Now, I planned a sermon uh, almost a year ahead of time. In November, I planned the whole sermon series. Not what I'm going to say, but just what I'm going to preach on. And so November 2020, just remember that. I decided, look, we need to do a long series on the sovereignty of God, which is what we just did. And then I thought, we really need to jump into the gospel. We haven't preached through the gospels in a long time. And I planned all of that out in November 2020 having no idea that when I just charted it all out in my little calendar and, you know, uploaded to the cloud, that today on Mother's Day would be John 2, where John uh, shows us in his gospel that Jesus is going to get into a tiff with his mom. (laughs) And I had no idea until earlier this week that on Mother's Day I was going to have to preach this sermon where Jesus says to his mom, woman, why would you involve me with such a thing? So happy Mother's Day, moms. As we come to the one text in all of the Gospels where we see this conflict between Jesus and his mom, there are uh, two misconceptions that we want to clear up today. We'll do those at the very end in two questions I want to give you. But really, I want to read all through John chapter 2. I was only going to preach at the wedding of Cana in Galilee And then I started to see how these stories were interconnected more than I originally thought. So John chapter 2, the whole chapter, let me read through verse 22. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill up the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drew the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. 
This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just walk through the story and put some flesh on it if we can. This wedding in Cana where we don't know exactly how they got the invitation. If It seems like Mary got the invitation and then said, hey, Jesus, why don't you bring all your newfound friends that you've somehow gathered? Uh, bring Nathaniel, you know, bring Philip, bring Andrew. But <clears throat> somehow all the disciples and Mary and Jesus' brothers end up at this wedding. It might have been because Nathaniel was actually from Cana. That might have been the invite. But then in chapter 2, we see the problem. And the problem is they've got no more wine. Why would that be a problem? Well, for many reasons, one of which is this was a week-long ceremony. And in this day and age, uh, it was the groom and his family that was responsible for providing for everybody, food, drink, everything, for the whole week. And so now it's the groom's fault in his family. It would bring shame on them. And let me just say this. This is maybe... Not here nor there, but as the daughter of two high school girls, I would recommend that we go to that biblical model of the groom family having to bear all the financial burden for a wedding. It's the most biblical model I can see, and I think we should all jointly agree to return to that starting now, right now. Well, she asked Jesus, they have no more wine. Why would she ask Jesus to do that? He hadn't done a miracle yet. Maybe she just thought he was resourceful. He was a carpenter. Maybe he was always solving problems when there was a problem around the house. She had been his mom for years, and she knew that Jesus could probably do something about that. I don't think she had any inclination it would work this way. There's nothing in Scripture that would make us think that he would do this on a regular basis. And he responds by saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, what do we do with that phrase? Uh, it's interesting because in one sense, it's not super encouraging, <laughs> but it's also not really disrespectful. 
I read it in Greek a bunch, looked at it a bunch, looked at the syntax a bunch, and tried to figure out how would we understand this in like modern times, this to come out of Jesus' mouth towards his mom. And the closest parallel I could find would be something like this. If you're in New York City and you hail a cab and it's really busy and it's busy on the streets and the cab driver said, and you're lollygagging trying to get in the car and the cab driver says, lady, get in the car. It's not really disrespectful, but it's kind of cutting, and it kind of gets right to the point. You know, it's, it's kind of in that category when he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? In other words, you have no idea what I have come for, and my hour has not yet come. Ergo, I'm not the source of party tricks, and I'm not just here trying to keep everybody happy. My hour has not yet come. When does his hour come? Well, in John chapter 17, when he lifts his eyes open to heaven, he says, Father, my hour has come that you would glorify me. Talking about his crucifixion, that he would save the world. Jesus knew his purpose, and his purpose was not just keeping everybody happy. But, interestingly, we see the story continue. They filled up these jars, um, 30 to 20 gallons in each of the stone jars. I should say for the record, I probably don't need to say this, but wine was very much diluted in this day and age. Didn't mean you couldn't get drunk on it. There's warnings about that. But think of it as less alcohol content than a light beer. Not like an old vine Zin that has like 15% or a Cab Sav that has 14%. But think of it like 2 or 3%. So they had all of this wine that they would drink throughout the day. And why would Jesus even do that? Why would Jesus even play along? I mean, he already resisted a little bit his mom. Like, well, what does this have to do with me? This is a bridegroom's problem. Why would he even play along with it? Here's why. It's actually beautiful. Because in this culture, it's a shame culture. And so for this groom to be exposed, for this groom to have run out of resources for the party, For this groom to be completely shamed because he can't provide. Something I think triggered in Jesus' heart that says, I'll cover that shame. I'll cover what he can't do. I'll provide resources that he doesn't have. And it's actually beautiful because we run out of resources too. We want our resources for our joy, for our peace, for our strength. We have to keep coming back to Christ. And what Christ does on the cross is not only crucify and forgive our sin, but he covers our shame. So that when we run out of resources, when we're humiliated, when we're put to shame, we can say, I'm going to ask for forgiveness because Jesus has forgiven me. See, if if Jesus had not covered up the shame of the bridegroom here, then the bridegroom would have had to probably back into the playing game. I told my servants to do it. I told my dad we needed more. I told this, it's not my fault. He would have gotten into that place that we all get when our sin is exposed and we either minimize it or we rationalize it away. But what Jesus did here is beautiful because his desire was to cover the shame of the groom. And then he takes this drawing to the master of the feast. The master of the feast tastes it, verse 10. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the best until now. I just love that scene. Because Christ lets the groom get all of the benefits. 
Christ allows the groom to get all of the, the joy of it, all the credit for it. You know, it's much like when somebody says uh, to you, uh, you're so patient. Maybe nobody's ever said that to you before. So try something else. Uh, you're so kind. You're so generous. You're so, hopefully somebody's complimented you at some point in your life. And if you're a Christian, you can say thank you, but you also need to say anything that you see in me that's good in my life comes right from my Father in heaven. I'm not humble because I'm naturally humble. I'm humble because God's made me humble. I'm not generous because I'm natural. I'm generally greedy. God's made me. This, it's come from the Father. He's the one who's covered me. He's the one who made the wine the good wine. And I just love, I don't know, but I just love this possibility where they taste this wine. And it says in parentheses here, only the servants knew what had happened. They just filled it with water. They pulled it out. Only the servants and Jesus knew. And the master of the feast saying, you've saved the best until now. Nobody does it this way. And Jesus looking over to the servants and going, don't tell anybody about this one. This is just between us. We're covering over this groom. We're covering over his shame with grace. It says here at the end, verse 11, this is the first of the signs, and the disciples did it. Cain and Galilee manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. Have you ever thought about that? The disciples at this point were just following him as a rabbi. They didn't even know he was the son of God yet. They didn't know he was God incarnate. They just saw this sign, and they started to believe. Think about the disciples. A lot of them are from the country. They're simple kind of guys. Uh, they're fishermen. How did, it, how did it come that at the end of the Gospels, they would say, we're willing to give our lives for you, but right now they're tenuous. It came because throughout their entire lives of following Jesus, time after time, they saw evidence they saw evidence that changed and challenged their worldview. And so now we see a little kernel, not just of them growing in faith, but evidence that increased their faith, that increased their belief in him. And as they started to bank that more and more and more, they get to the end of the Gospels and they say, we'll go anywhere with you because we've seen all that we need to see. Now, here's why I say that. If you're going to be a disciple of Christ, part of your life is storehousing and banking faith. It's building evidence. It's building faith. If you're a high schooler, you start to build your faith. Faith is not like the lottery where you hope you just get a downpour of it one day. It's like building wealth. You live underneath your means, you save a little bit, you spend a little bit, you're generous with it, you build wealth and you build your faith. And so if you're in high school, start now writing a prayer journal. I'm praying for these 10 things this year. I'm praying for this thing until it happens. And then watch God change your heart or your mind or watch God answer that prayer and keep record of it, and you'll build your faith. So over a lifetime, you'll have this dividend of faith that you've established. Now, if you're older, you can catch up. Apparently, 55 and older, you can catch up on all kinds of financial things. You can catch up on your faith as well. 
Because one of the joys of being a pastor of this church where I've seen so many people walk with the Lord for so long is to see an older member of this church who's struggling in the latter years of their life with something like loneliness or something like cancer or something like doubt and hearing them say to me in my office at a lunch in a coffee shop, Andy, God's not done with me yet. I believe that he's got something great for me. I, I know I'm going to follow him through this because I think, oh, it's just, that's years of following the Lord by faith that's created this beautiful dividend in your life. And so here we see the end of that story, the seven-day feast. Jesus takes a little R&R in Capernaum, and then he goes to another seven-day feast. This one is not a civil feast. This is a ceremonial feast, the cleansing of the temple. Now, like I said, I was originally only going to preach on the wedding, but we see that these two are needed to go together to get a full picture of who Jesus is. Because in the wedding, we see a picture, a snapshot of Jesus that looks like he's just going to go along, just play along, placate people. And then we see another snapshot of Jesus at the cleansing of this temple where he's not going along with anybody. He's not playing along. He's going to do what he needs to do. And both of those come together in a wonderful way. So the Passover was this seven-day feast that celebrated, obviously, the blood going over the doorpost, the Passover of the angel. And here we see Jesus walking in to this Passover celebration as the Passover lamb himself. And don't miss the irony of that. And he comes in and he sees these sheep and these pigeons, these money changers all sitting there. And then, look at what he does. He makes a whip of cords. He doesn't go down to tractor supply and say, I'm going to need a whip. You got a whip. I need something I can run livestock out with. You got anything like that, a cattle prod, anything I can buy, I can pick up. And the reason why it's important that he made a whip of cords is because this is not a fit of rage. He was intentionally disruptive, intentionally so. It's not, he didn't lose it. He didn't just grow and angry and just you know, go crazy on everybody. He went, he made his whip of cords. He knew exactly what he was going to do. And one of the interesting things about this text is he made this whip of cords not to whip the money changers. I don't know what mind you have or kind of how you're thinking. He's not like whipping those guys. It's used to get the livestock out of the temple. It's actually not an argument against practice as much as it is location. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before. But years before uh, this time, all of this would happen at the Mount of Olives, People would come in and pay their taxes or they would pay the temple fee, but oftentimes regional areas would have different amounts of silver, so there were money changers set up because if you're from Galilee, your coinage might have less silver than somebody else, so you'd have to get the purest form or you have to make sure it's equal, that everybody's paying the same amount of currency. You could get your sacrifice there because you're not going to drag an oxen in from Tel Aviv, and so you would just come get one there. But the problem was it localized here to the temple. And so Jesus comes in, he drives out these sheep, he drives out the oxen. Just um, imagine the this, this scene, pouring out uh, the change on the stone floor, hearing it rattle, watching people kind of scatter around, trying to pick up and stuff the things back in the pocket, taking the tables and 
either turning them or flipping them. I'm not sure how it looked, but turning them over. And at this point, verse 17, his disciples remembered as it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now that's important because it comes from Psalm 69. It's actually not a messianic psalm, unless you believe that all psalms are messianic psalms. But Psalm 69 is a a psalm of refuge. And it starts with, with David saying, I'm shamed. I need my shame covered. Interesting connection to the wedding. And then he eventually says, zeal for your house will consume me. In other words, the only thing that matters, God, is what you think of me. Not what others, not my advocates, not my adversaries, not what they think about me. But God, what is it that you think about me? Zeal for you and for your presence and to be in your house, that will consume me. And then at the end of Psalm 69, before he goes into this litany of praise, David says, and you hear the needy. We're not even in application yet. But let me just ask you, what is it you need? Because part of what we do in worship and part of what we do when we come to this space one hour a week is hopefully to come to a place of refuge and rest where we can say, God, I need you. I want more of you. I might need your forgiveness, but I also might need your peace. I also might need your joy, but I need you. Every bit of you is what I need What if we could make church, worship, that kind of place where it's not just a claptrap of all the money and all the activity, but it's a place where we can come, where we can sit in these pews, we can sit in those chairs, we can tell the Lord and each other what we need and we can rest because this is a place where all the clamor has gone away. I don't know if you saw, it was a viral video that went out, but it was a subway in New York City, and it was this well-dressed guy in his 60s out on a suit, uh, reading a book, looked very professional, lawyer, hedge fund guy. And then there was this uh, black kid, 22, 23, dressed exactly like you would imagine a black kid in New York City to be dressed. But he had a shirt on, looked like he probably came out of some night shift working, and the black kid sitting beside him, was leaning on this guy and fast asleep and was just all over him. And on the video, somebody said uh, to the guy, do you want us to wake him up and get him off of you? And the guy said, no. He's had a, he's had a long day. He needs to rest. He needs to rest. Why would we wake him up? He, he just needs to rest. What if church could be that place where we can kind of come in and collapse on each other? Do we need to wake them up? No, just let them rest. That's why it's never bothered me if any of you fall asleep in worship. (laughs) And I know. I I see you. So I know exactly who you are. But you might just need to rest. I had a preacher who told me, that he was a younger guy, and he said, Andy, it seems like everybody falls asleep during my sermons. What do I do? I said, get better. <laughs> I, I don't know what to tell you. Change something. Get better. Start coffee. Do something. But sometimes we just need to come in, and we just need to rest. Now, here's the question 
Have we succeeded in making church the same thing that these people have? Where we come in, it's not a place to be needy, it's a place to be seen. It's a place where we come and we think we can somehow pay God off. We can pay our tax, we can give our sacrifice, we can check the box and we can walk right out. Everything's covered, everything's super easy. And if you start to view that church that way, you'll know it. And here's how you'll know it. Because you'll start to have themes of entitlement. I've been tithing to this church for so and so long. I can't believe they changed that program. I was a charter member here for this many years. I can't believe they did this. Oh, now (laughs) you're starting to view church as some kind of like Christian club. Not a place where people rest and are needy and come in and say, God, we need to hear from you, not all the money changers, not all the other things. Well, interestingly, the same thing happens that happens in our hearts. Look at what he says in verse 18. What sign... Do you have for doing these things? In other words, Jesus, we're going to need to see your papers. Oh, what authority do you possibly have to ruin and disrupt this whole system that we have established? And we tend to say the same thing. Jesus, what's your authority for telling me about my sexuality? What's your authority for telling me about how to spend my time? What's your authority for telling me how to spend my money? What's your authority for telling me who I should forgive and not forgive? By whose authority are you possibly telling me how to live my life? And Jesus said, here's the authority. I can do things you can't do. Destroy this temple, his body, and I'll raise it in three days. Oh, it's taken us 46 years to get this exactly the way we wanted it. But Jesus saying, no, no, no. You need a new and better wine. You need to destroy me through the crucifix. And my blood will become your wine. And my flesh will become your blood. And my crucifix will not only forgive you, it will also sanctify you. It will also change you so you don't have to deal with that shame anymore. Well, very quickly, let's go to these two misconceptions. Once we get done with this text, what can we say? Two misconceptions. The first one is this. Because of this text, because of the wedding at Cana in Galilee, we can't say that Jesus doesn't care. We can't say anymore that Jesus doesn't care. And some of us have that narrative. We like to think in our minds, if God really cared, he would do this. Or God really loved me, he would have done this. Or if God really cared, he would have established this. But when we see Jesus caring about a no-name bridegroom at this wedding in Cana, for him not to be shamed and to do something so miraculous as he did, which is not exactly a normal miracle for him, and to do it privately and in a way that doesn't bring any attention to himself, but the bridegroom gets all the credit in the world, we can't say that Jesus doesn't care about us. And he saves the best wine for last. He makes, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower, let me just say this. Following Christ might not change some of your circumstance, but it makes everything taste better. So, I'll try to get through this. Um, If you've been in Mitch Road for a long time, you've heard this story because many of you walked through it with me. Uh, Years ago, uh, we lost Elizabeth's mom to uh, leukemia. She actually beat leukemia. She was at Johns Hopkins, and then she got the common cold. And uh, 24 hours, she's gone. 
and Elizabeth was there in D.C. with her, and I was in Pittsburgh. Ran the car and drove over. By the time I got there, it was too late. Everybody was already at the house, and uh, I didn't get to say goodbye to her. It was She was uh, actually my first funeral I ever did was my mother-in-law, who I adored. No mother-in-law jokes here. I adored her, adored her. And uh, I walked into the house, and Elizabeth's father had a bottle of wine open. And my first thought was, that's weird. And then I saw the bottle of wine, and it was one of five bottles that we had bought in Australia together, and they were all special bottles, and we were going to open them at special times, just he and I. When I graduated from seminary, when I had, if I ever had a son, uh, when Catherine and Elizabeth's sister got married, we had them earmarked for the exact events when we're going to open these. He opened one of those. He said, do you want a glass of wine? I said, no. No, this all feels weird. Why would we, your wife just died. And he said, I know I opened one of these bottles because tonight I wanted to celebrate. I said, you what? He said, I want to celebrate because this is not anything I would wish for my life to be like. But tonight my wife is with her first love. She loved Jesus more than she loved me. And that was the whole goal of marriage, is to get her to love Jesus more than me, and for her to get me to love Jesus more than her. And so tonight, even though this is the worst day so far of my life, I'm going to celebrate a little bit because my wife is with the one who she truly loves and who truly loves her. And I thought, wow, with Christ, the worst day of your life can actually become a day of celebration. With Christ, a day of a funeral becomes a day of worship. You've saved the best for last, and maybe your life hasn't turned out the way that you've wanted it to, but you can still drink and draw from the wine of Christ's salvation and enjoy his presence because, as it says in John 10.10, a couple chapters later, Jesus is going to declare, I've come that you might have life. I haven't come to condemn you i've come that you might have life and have it abundantly overflowing six jars 20 to 30 gallons full of life that you could enjoy me in my presence and then here's the second thing we can say misconception we can't say that jesus can be controlled sometimes we think that jesus doesn't care and then we waffle and we think that we can somehow can control jesus And here we see, as he cleanses this temple, we can't control him. You can't buy him off. You can't convince him with your moralism, what to act. You can't string together all the right amount of prayers to get him to change his will. You can't control him, and that's good for us. Because one day, all of us are going to run out of resources. And if we can't control him, then we know he can control the things we can't control, which is our debt, which is our payment. All of us, we don't have enough moralism. We don't have enough righteousness. We don't have enough good works to get God to fall in love with us. He just falls in love with us. I remember, just to give a lighter story, uh, about 10 years ago, I went with Elizabeth's grandfather, and there was about 10 of us to a Baltimore Orioles game. And there's about 10 of us on this row, and they came down. We were only a couple rows up, so they, we were in the section where they come down to take our order. And they said, do you all want anything uh, to eat or drink? And her grandfather said, this is all on me, boys. This is all on me. There's like 12 of us. So we're like, oh, okay. 
I'll take the nachos and the burger and the drink. And, you know, so we all ordered and they went up and they got it all and they came back down. He was so proud. He had all of his people there, you know, his sons, grandsons. He said, this is all on me. And uh, the person came down. We passed all the food down to everybody. And then he held up proudly. I still remember this, a $50 bill and a $20 bill. And the person looked at it and said, sir, that will be $242. (laughs) And the look on his face when he realized, I haven't been to a baseball game since Mickey Mantle, A. (laughs) And B, inflation has completely run me by. I I mean, there's a look, and he didn't have enough money in his wallet to cover it. So we all started handing down $20 bills, you know, to cover. And I was like, I, didn't, I would have never ordered this if I knew I was paying for it. But, you know, we're handing it all down. And, but that look of shock on his face, it's always stuck with me because it's the look of shock on our face where Jesus says, what's, what's your account for your sin? And we hold up a 50 and 20 of our moralism that we think we've stored up that somehow convinces him we can pay for our debt. And Jesus says, you Your net worth isn't enough to cover your sin and your rebellion. But I've covered it all for you anyway. The reason why Jesus whips out all of these animals from the temple is because he wants to disrupt our lives and take and drive everything out of your life that shouldn't be there. All the sin out of your life that shouldn't be there so that you can enjoy his presence. Jesus is a great refuge. He's also a warrior. A warrior that fights not only for us, but with us. Which is why uh, when the ships were going into Okinawa, they turned off all the communications for eight minutes. And all the ships, as they're about to hit those beaches in Okinawa, played the hymn, Near My God to Thee. Because they were. And a lot of them were about to get a lot nearer, a lot quicker. But what Jesus does, he says, I am going to be the person that fights for you so that you can be nearer, my God, to thee. Well, here are the closing questions. Those are the two misconceptions that we can put away from. Jesus doesn't care and that Jesus can be controlled. Now, here's the two closing questions. Because, as it says, I'm going to read the last little prologue here. Now, when he got into Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, what they saw, the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Wish I could preach a whole sermon on that line. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Jesus said, I, I'm not going to entrust myself into your whims of what you think I should be, but I need you to entrust yourself to me. So here are two great questions. Jack Miller used to ask these questions. Number one, what are you doing for no other reason than your love for Jesus? Write that down. What are you doing for no other reason but your love for Jesus? Number two, what have you stopped doing only because of your love for Jesus? Clear out all the stuff. Spend some time growing near to Christ, seeing his care, his power, his worship, his warrior status, and his refuge and rest. 
There's nobody like our Savior. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray now. I don't know why it's on my mind to pray this way, but uh, I pray now that for those young in their faith, either by age or by stage, uh, you would you would start through this study of the Gospel of John to build our faith more and more. Like the disciples, we would see you doing these things and we would build our faith and we would believe so at the end of this study in a couple months, our faith in you would be deeper, that we would see you answer prayers or change our hearts, change our desires. And pray that we would all be able to believe more in your power and your might in the sufficiency of your sacrifice in your sanctifying ability to change us. So Jesus, thank you for covering our shame with a wink, almost a smirk, allowing us to get credit for things in our lives that only you have brought forth. And thank you for your intentional disruptive ability, that zeal for your house, this house, consumes you. Thank you that you are the temple and now we're the temple, that the Holy Spirit resides in us and the Holy Spirit lives in us. And so drive out anything that shouldn't be there. And may we live lives, joy, peace, strength, drinking the wine of salvation, even on the bad days where life hasn't gone our way, that we can worship and remember what you've done, that you have come to give us life and life abundant. We pray these things in your name. Amen.